This recording was originally a live Q&A, which took place back in June 2022. For a very long time, and I'm talking like two or three years ago, when I first wanted to get more exposure towards the stock market or other liquid investments and kind of move some funds out of my venture investments, that was always my big fear, how I would feel if I invest now and then a year later, uh, everything is worth just 20% less or 40% less or, or in crypto, it's like 60% less to 80% less. Maybe it's because I spend so much time worrying about this that now it doesn't affect me at all. I, I don't spend any time looking at prices. I don't worry. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Happy Friday, everyone. Cedric, uh, you're in a good mood. I see you're dancing to the intro music. Welcome back music. to our live Q&A sessions. Thanks for having me. It's been too long. Good to reconnect. Yeah, it's finally about time. I'm very happy to, to have you here today. We, we said we want to do sort of like a 30-minute power session to talk about the current market conditions. Because when we look at it, right, no matter whether it's stocks, crypto, or anything else, everything is plummeting at the moment. So I ask you, did you see this coming? Did you expect that this would happen? So I, uh, I mean, as pretty much everyone else, I'm not able to time the market. So I couldn't tell you that this was coming this quarter or, or this uh, in 2022. Um, overall, I think over the last two, maybe even four years, I've always had a sense that like there is, it, it must, the party will stop at some point. Um, and we talked, we might have even talked about it on this um, live stream before. When, when I said it, it just feels unnatural for me to invest at the prices that we were at uh, previous to this crash. Um, because everything was valued at such high valuations. Uh, so in a, in a way, I think I felt that it was coming at some point, but um, I also thought the crash was happening two years ago when we were at the beginning of COVID, and then we saw one of the biggest rallies in all markets yeah. um, following to that. So um, I'm just trying to follow your advice and dollar cost average into the things that <laughs> I want to hold long term. Yeah. Um, and other than that, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to time the market in any way. Now, now with the things happening, right, um, did you change your strategy in any way? Did you invest less and, and hold more cash? Or did you make any changes to your investment strategy because of what happened over the past few months? Um, I've been accumulating cash over the last two years because I thought at some point uh, it will come in handy. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't really, uh, other than my day-to-day -day where I invest in early-stage ventures, I haven't really deployed cash yet. Yeah. So it's one of the things that's on my list. I feel like we're not at the end of this crash yet, so there's no rush. Um, but I do want to sit down and develop a strategy for what are the assets I want to pick up um, while prices are lower than they were in the last couple of years. Right. And holding cash, of course, that can be one strategy. But at the same time, you also see inflation at the rise, basically. Is that something that is concerning you that you say, well, it's good to have the option to make investments now well, because you have cash, but at the same time, you also don't want to hold too much cash because inflation is rising. Yeah, and I, I actually battled with that question for a while. Um, um, what I've done the last maybe one and a half years is mostly 
participate in market neutral strategies. So I would hold the base asset in a stable coin or the US dollar and then participate mm -hmm. in strategies that generated somewhere between five and 10% annually, uh, which at least seems to like, uh, to some degree, set, uh, offset the inflation that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that for me was a, a good way to hold cash without losing on that position too much. Got it. It, it of course comes with uh, downsides. It's, I mean, there's no risk-free reward as we've seen with Celsius. So I had a position in Celsius. Celsius, for those who don't know, is a, uh, a yield aggregator or a yield provider in the crypto space that gave you somewhere around like seven or eight percent on like USDC or USDT, a US dollar stable coin. Mm -hmm. And just a couple, I think it's a couple of weeks ago now, maybe three weeks, um, they halted withdrawals. And uh, I only liquidate my or like withdrew my position shortly before that. So, so I was lucky and I, um, I worked with them to get my funds out as soon as I, um, I had a, a feeling that they were going to be in trouble uh, sometime soon. So I, I withdrew my funds and put them elsewhere. But yeah, um, that was one of the places that I used. And for the time that it worked, it was great. But um, it's just a reminder that no reward is risk-free. Yeah, very good reminder. Good timing for your uh, withdrawal process. You know, I also want to know about the recession that many people talk about. We're not in a recession yet, but maybe it comes. You said before, you don't think that we're at the end of this negative cycle yet. So what do you expect? I know nobody can predict the future, but what do you expect for the next few months and maybe also years? What should we prepare for? What's actually the definition of a recession? Um, what do I expect? I mean, unfortunately and sadly, I, I don't see an end for the war in Ukraine. I'm not following the news too closely, but I just haven't seen any news that would make me think that the end is near, um, sadly. So yeah. I think that's going to have an impact on how the world um, develops from here. And, and I think that could hopefully, in the best case scenario, we'll, we'll just find... Uh, or like a compromise will be found or some sort of solution and we'll be able to put that behind us. Um, but also I think there's a scenario where that further escalates and hopefully that's not going to be the reality, but then that could have further negative impact. And then I think within the finance and venture industry, I think we're seeing funding being withdrawn or, <clears throat> or being handed out slower than we saw in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of companies that manage their funds well and have a profitable business at their core that uh, can survive and will survive this crisis or the next few years or however, however long funding will be restricted. Mm -hmm. But I think we're also going to see some snowball effects like we saw with Celsius. Celsius kind of followed the collapse of UST and the anchor. Um, it's like high yield decentralized protocol. When that collapsed, it created uh, liquidity issues for Celsius and probably a few other players. And we're probably, we're going to keep seeing like these ripple effects, uh, given that like some parties then had to liquidate their Bitcoin or Ethereum positions that further dragged the market down, which led to further liquidations. And so I think right now we're in this like downward spiral where every additional mm -hmm. event accelerates the downward trend. So we'll see um, how things are going to, Go for it. Yeah, I, I'm not too optimistic at the moment. Yeah. Also, just to quickly come down to the recession question. Thank you for posting this, Patrick. 
negative GDP for two quarters. That's the official definition. Thank you, Patrick. And also one thing that you see in, in DeFi, right? Many people have leverage on their investments. And then this just, you know, sort of strengthens this negative spiral because then you get liquidated. Yes. Then you have more coins on the market, which further down puts down the prices. It's, it's quite a, a massive, you know, effect that you can put in place there. Yes, I, that, that's what I meant by like that downward spiral. I think that's why um, I, I think unless we see some uh, very powerful positive news, I, I would only, I'm cautiously preparing myself for like further um, decline in prices and uh, volumes at the moment. And what does that mean for your investment strategy besides increasing the cash holdings that you recently did over the past two years? Yeah, I think now is the time where I feel comfortable deploying cash okay. and investing. Um, I uh, probably similar to most people, there's a uh, uh, an emotional component that makes it hard to invest or buy something um, that recently declined in price. But then, yeah. rationally, I think that's the best time to invest. And so, both on the personal side, where I'm looking to increase um, positions in certain liquid assets. Um, at the same time, in my professional life with Tomahawk, where this is the time where that we thrive in, like mm -hmm. that's where we make the best investments, right? When you, uh, when we have cash and we can invest in great businesses, great teams, and uh, support them during this crisis, I think that's that's how you make great investments. In in that way, do you focus more on your current existing investments, or do you also? purposefully look for new investments what what is the balance there did that change in any way to before the crisis so to speak not necessarily i i think back when covid first hit two years ago we first we we kind of uh put a foot on the brakes with new investments and we first wanted to understand what was happening in the world and how we could yeah. support our existing portfolio right now at least um apart from those portfolios where uh, they had people in Ukraine or Russia, and mm -hmm. we um, brainstormed and workshopped around like what are solutions for uh, their team members to be safe and uh, in a place where they can be productive and also receive funds. Other than that, I, I feel um, the portfolios don't need a, a ton of help other than a very clear signal that they should focus on default the life i think is what y combinator called it which is yeah, the, exactly. the term that describes like build your business in a way where you can be alive even if you don't have funding uh, yeah. meaning you have profitable unit economics and even though marketing might make your business unprofitable you can always cut those marketing costs off and then have a profitable motor at the core of your business yeah. um, so at the moment we don't see any panic in the portfolio or we don't see any questions around like how do we deal with this situation um so for us we we always have um we look at it uh in two ways we have funds that are ready to be deployed into our winners into our existing portfolio and we continue mm -hmm. to do that um and then we have funds that we're looking to invest in primary investments into new investments um and and that's what we'll use to uh, find and meet new great teams and support them so it's yeah, it's still a balance of both actually investing in new companies and in existing companies. Yeah, luckily, I mean the the capital that I'm investing in Tomahawk has been committed um, three years ago. Mm -hmm. So 
so that capital is there, independent from what the stock market does at the moment or the crypto right. market does at the moment. And we also we don't speculate with that money. It's just it's just fiat money, yeah. uh, very stable in Swiss francs in our case. And so I mean, apart from like, of course, it's like plus minus ten percent exchange rate to the dollar or euro. But sure. apart from that, um, we're very um, conservative with that with those funds. Yeah, to be ready in a situation like this, right? Because I I think if history teaches you anything, it's the best investments were made and the best companies were built during a time of crisis. If you look back like 2008, 9, 10, had a bunch of like really great companies emerge. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes me excited about these next maybe 12 months or however long this, this is going to take. Absolutely. Yeah. Now it's a really great time to attack if you're in a position to do so. I mean, there are huge layoffs in, in tech companies where you have much less uh, you know, fight over talent. So if you have the budget, if you are bootstrapped, for example, or you're high, highly profitable, or you're still able to raise funds because you have such an attractive case, that's a very good time to to go big in attack. One thing I also want to know is like, when you look at your portfolio, right? Um, everything is probably turning red to a certain degree, at least on a daily basis. How yeah. does that make you feel? How do you deal with sort of the negativity, if you look at your portfolio and you think, oh, I have lost X amount of dollars or X percent in, in total value. Does that do anything to you? You know, it's very interesting because for a very long time, and I'm talking like two or three years ago, when I first wanted to get more exposure towards the stock market or um, other liquid investments um, mm-hmm. and kind of move some funds out of my uh, venture investments, that was always my big fear, how I would feel if I invest now and then a year later, uh, everything is worth just 20% less or 40% less or or in crypto, it's like 60% less to 80% less. And uh, maybe it's because I spent so much time worrying about this that now it doesn't affect me at all. Um, wow. I, I don't spend any time looking at prices. Um, I don't worry. Uh, I have a very long-term view with the things that I hold on the stock market. It's mostly ETFs, and I, I, I'm fairly convinced that long-term the stock market is going to go up again. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. reason why it wouldn't. And then also in crypto, the assets that I hold are all projects that I think will have a lot of value in the future. And so I'm just using it to accumulate more. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'm lucky maybe, but I... Uh, surprisingly, I'm not worried about prices as much as I thought I would be. I mean, that's a nice surprise, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it almost feels like I already went through all the thought, the fear, uncertainty and doubt when there wasn't the market to support my feelings. Mm-hmm. And now that it's there, I it's relatively easy for me to stomach the, the changes. Right. There's also one thing I, I'm interested to hear your opinion about many people said, you know, in the beginnings of crypto, when there was no crisis yet, that crypto is sort of, you know, not linked to the overall economy. It is more of an independent asset, uh, more of like a store of value, etc. Now, if you look at it, stocks go down, crypto goes down, everything goes down. So is that sort of initial assumption that many people had not true? Is it wrong? Or how do you see that? It probably held true for a certain period, right? When mm-hmm the investors were very different when you had mostly retail investors that invested in Bitcoin or Ether because they believed this was like the next financial infrastructure or it was the digital gold. Yeah. But I think in the last few years, 
we've seen a a lot of institutionals enter the market, and then B we've also seen a lot of um, uh, kind of crypto businesses accumulate positions on their balance sheet that they now and we talked about it um, they might get liquidated on, and that creates like a similar trend as what happens in the traditional markets because these professional traders or uh, yeah professional investors they use different instruments than the typical retail user that might just buy bitcoin and hold it and, yeah. and doesn't have any leverage or doesn't have any uh sort of instruments that that come with a, a certain risk return profile right. so so i think it's just a it's a consequence of the fact that bitcoin and crypto in general has gone more, more mainstream in the last few years and it's a liquid asset so if you need cash if you need to liquidate somewhere else um, it, it's one more place where you go and you sell um, yeah. in order to accumulate, uh, in order to like protect another asset that you might need to uh, inject cash into. Absolutely. And that's also a good reminder. You know, if you talk about reminders that we often forget in times of crisis, don't invest too much money. Always have this, I call it the second fountain for, for my own like thinking process. We have enough cash that you can sleep well at night and you don't need to worry about paying your rent next month or paying a hospital bill, whatever might come up, that you do have enough cash on the side. Invest everything on top of that, but not too much that you cannot sleep at night or that you get into trouble and have to sell at low prices. That would just be a bad squeeze. Yeah, I think uh, one asset that I, asset class that I'd love to have more exposure to is real estate for that reason. Mm -hmm. right? Because people are not going to move out. Uh, I mean... If we're talking about like regular real estate, um, your typical yeah. flat in a city, people right. are not going to move out because prices crumble. Uh, it's going to hurt them. Maybe they might earn less. They might have less cash to spend, but typically they're not going to be in a position where they can leave their apartment within the time during that crisis. Um, so that's one area where I'm thinking about um, accumulating more or like getting more exposure because I, I think it's a great uh, protection. And also what we've seen in the last few years, right? Real estate goes up when the market does well, and then it probably also goes up when it doesn't go well, <laughs> um, especially in a place like Switzerland where it's pretty scarce. Yeah. I think we're going to talk about that in future live sessions as you make your way and find uh, investment opportunities. Yes. Here's an interesting question coming in from, from Tobias. He asks, what kind of financial advice will you give to your daughter? Of course, she's too young to, to invest herself yet, but... Has this changed in the last few months? That's a very interesting question to ask. I'd say the number one thing is that I want to educate her about investing in general much earlier in her life than when I learned about investments. I mean, for me, it's basically, aside from venture investments, which I started early on, but public equities and uh, all the tools and processes that come with that I've basically only learned after I was 25 years old, which yeah. if you, um, not that I, uh, yeah. And even if, if, even if I think I didn't have a ton of money to invest back then, like if back then I knew about dollar cost averaging and, um, this, uh, rule of 4% where you kind of try and define what is the budget that you need to live. And then what is the amount of capital you need to have invested in order to live off of passive income? I think just those are very powerful concepts. And so I want to I make sure early in her life, 
she learns about that um, idea definitely from me. And then ideally she also learns it in school or uh, yeah. some sort of education that she um, is privy to. Has it changed in the last few months? Uh, not, I, I don't think fundamentally, but I think these market changes and the turmoil that we're seeing right now is definitely something that I'll tell her about. Mm -hmm. I, it wouldn't necessarily influence the strategies I would recommend or the education I will try and pass on. But uh, I think, with, look, I mean, looking back, um, I always wished I could have been a Web1 investor already in like the dot-com era, right? To like participate in the learning experience. And then Web2, I, I was there, but probably at the tail end of the golden era, which I would say was like mm -hmm. 2008, 9, 10, 11. And I started investing in like 13, 14. Now with crypto, I feel I'm finally uh, very close to the eye of the storm. Not necessarily because I'm the biggest investor, but because I spend most of my time thinking about why does something happen? Where does innovation come from? What new projects emerge? And I feel I can be there while it happens rather than like reading about it in the history books five years from now. Yep. And so all that experience, I think, is something that I, I want to pass on to her um, at some point. I like that. So you basically say you don't want to tell her what fish to eat, but you want to teach her how to fish on her own and stick to the principles. I, I like that approach because then yeah, no matter what happens in the market, she can make her own decisions. And probably also for me, I think there was a very high entry uh, barrier to investing mm -hmm. uh, because venture investing always felt natural to me for some reason <laughs> which is quite weird because it's way more difficult to enter that part right maybe but also it comes with less uh, because it's a liquid you don't need to like it, for me it came because i built companies before so i felt like i i had an edge in evaluating which founders were doing a good job building their mm -hmm. own companies uh, with public equities, I just never spent time on it. And I never, it was never something that either I learned in school, in university, or with my uh, family. Yeah. And so maybe that's my other takeaway is that I do want to expose her to learning opportunities early on um, yeah. and kind of help either provide with a budget that is, a, is fine to lose and she can just play with, or uh, ideally like help her build a business early on in her life and then help her reinvest profits and revenues from that in a way where she can learn about all these different instruments and can go through all these phases and emotions that come with investment. Yeah. Yeah. Robert recommends to gift her the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the, yeah. the old time yeah. classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. To yeah, get I gotta see if that's available as a, as an audiobook. Maybe I can start yeah. playing that for her. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Early practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One thing I also want to talk a bit more about is the, the startup fundraising and, and venture scene at the moment. You know, what we've seen in the US, um, I come from the SaaS part, right? So in SaaS, the multiples have dropped significantly. If you have a SaaS company, you look at the public companies, I think it somewhat went down from about 15 or even much higher for some case, like significantly higher to an average of about 5.6, something around there now. And that is a significant value destruction, so to speak. So you see lower valuations at startups. It's harder to raise funds because investors now do probably a bit more due diligence than before when there was much more free money uh, available. What do you see from an investor's pers perspective? Is it better for you because valuations are lower? You have 
more choices and less competition? Or don't you really notice a difference from the investment point of view? So I primarily invest in Web3. And I'd say the last two years, it's been hard to make good investments for me, or often it just didn't feel like a good investment because there was so mm -hmm. much noise in the space, so yeah. much distraction. And it almost felt like we were back in 2017 when it was all about, oh, company X, Y, and C announced a partnership with corporate X, Y, and C. And that's why the token price quadrupled overnight. <laughs> um, Which is crazy. Or, or in other terms, like people put a pitch deck together and they just put blockchain on it and, and they were able to raise funds. Yeah. And I think we're past that phase now. So for me, it feels much better because there's less noise. And what I'm interested in is finding people that are interested in building cool stuff rather mm -hmm. than uh, the financial gains in the short run. So yeah. for me, it, this phase feels a lot more natural. It's also more, it's also closer to the majority of the time when I was investing because I, I was investing in crypto, looking at the crypto markets in 2014, 15, 16, when it was not something that a lot of people wanted to invest in or believed in. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and I'm hoping we're going back to a sentiment that's closer to that, where we take the time to properly get to know each other, figure out if, if, we're, if we both want to um, be in the same boat for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and then we talk about what is the right valuation for the business. Whereas these last 12 months, often it's been, oh, yeah, I can talk for 30 minutes, but my round is already oversubscribed. Do you want to be in or not? Maybe I can cut you a 50K check. And I'm exaggerating, but that's often how it felt in, in this space. Because there was so much money flowing in and some of it not being smart money. Well, I, what do you I think will happen there? Because at one time, you know, this party will also be over, right? Do you think that more startups will go bust now that actually raised a lot of money, will not be able to raise more money or will just not deploy it the right way and will fail to deliver and build? I think the party already has ended for a lot of them. I mean, we, we see it with some like public examples, but then also um, smaller startups that just can't close their fundraise right now. Yeah. Um, we still have funds with a lot of, uh, assets under their belt. Um, I think Sequoia just raised another four and a half, or was it Andreessen or Sequoia? I think someone just raised a four and a half billion dollar fund, closed it like two months ago or something like that to deploy in Web3. So yeah. there, there's still plenty of money there for good companies. But I think the tone has already changed. Entrepreneurs aren't expecting to raise at a 50 million pre-evaluation with just a pitch deck and being a solo, the, the only team member. Uh, which, and this is not exaggerated, was the case six to nine months ago. Crazy. So, so I think in that sense, it's it, the, the areas, the markets are healing. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think it's overcorrected. Um, I think this last multiple study described seemed too low to me uh, for the long run. Yeah. Um, but that just goes back to my thinking about, like, because you mentioned them for like public companies. I, I think there's lots of, great public companies that are currently undervalued and are easy to pick up now if you uh, if you spend a bit of time researching them and figuring out what you think is really the, the right valuation for these companies. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of undervalued assets around there in the public markets, especially with software companies.
Well, one thing that we see here, you know, with Swisspinner, we, we have this uh, investment syndicate that we started yes. with like very early stage companies. So for us, we only started three months ago. Um, we have financed five cases so far in that time, just all through our like crowd, so to speak, the people that sign up for our deal flow and do their own mm -hmm. due diligence and make their own decision. So for us, we don't really see, we don't have the comparison, right? But we see from an early st stage standpoint, not a big difference. The valuations there are not exorbitantly high as they might be in other cases, normal standard ranges that you see and people do want to invest. They are looking to support and invest in startups with lower amounts starting at 5K. So from our perspective, early stage investment is still going pretty well, but maybe that will change in the time in the future. We don't really know. I think also Switzerland traditionally, are those investments in Switzerland or are they somewhere Yeah, else? only Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel also Switzerland is always a bit more measured in the sense that it it's not as volatile as maybe the U.S. market, where yeah. the sentiment changes much more abruptly. Um, so I think here also, I mean, we've seen it with the Swiss franc, right? It's been so stable over the past two, yeah, three true. years, um, whereas some of these other currencies are fluctuating a lot more. Um, so I think that's a that's a big, um, uh, yeah plus or pro for the Swiss economy. What um, What is your process when you look at, or maybe if there's companies listen, or founders listening right now that think it'd be great to get someone like Swisspreneur um, on board as a syndicate, what is your process? How do they get in touch with you? And what are the questions you typically ask them? Yeah, sure. So we, we have that on our website. Um, for both investors, they could just sign up for the email newsletter or for companies, they can fill in the type form and apply with their pitch deck and answer a few questions. So basically, you want to see that there's a legal company already founded, that you're not a solo founder, but also not too many founders. We want to see some traction. So you have to be beyond the pure idea stage. And then we want to understand better, like, why are you working on that problem? Why is the timing right right now? And who are your competitors? to get a better understanding about your traction, what you're trying to build and achieve. And then we have these hard criteria and then of course also gut feeling in the end based on our own experience and uh, you know all the conversations that we had with the interview guests, et cetera, on the podcast that then leads to a yes or no. And in the end, we don't make the final decision. We then just prepare the information and send out uh, an investment memo every two weeks with a new case to our investor base um, there are a bit more than 200 people that signed up and they then look at the case and have to make their own decision if they find the startup company interested and if they want to invest uh, or not. So it's very simple. We pre-vet the cases because we think that this is also our responsibility and we just have limited time and space available, right? We cannot like push a new case every day. And just for those that are um, looking to sign up either as a founder or as an investor, I think it's swisspreneur.org slash syndicate. Yeah, exactly. That's the URL. Under engage investment, I found it now, but I had to Google it. Okay, and then uh, as I'm asking you questions, like one that's of course been in the back of my mind since before, like just before we started this, you told me that uh, you've found someone to uh, sublet your flat to and you're going to be on the road living a nomadic <laughs> life for the next couple months. What's, Sounds uh, like a familiar story. <laughs> uh, I might know someone that's, that's gone through a similar journey at some point in their life. Yeah. What is your, um, why? Why are, you, why are you doing this? I mean, for me, I felt like, if not now, when then? 
So just do it. Um, I find it appealing. I find it interesting. And I do have the option of doing that right now. So I just want to learn and uh, put myself into this position and say, hey, I go wherever I'm interested in going and uh, see what happens. Maybe I'll come back after two months and say, that was absolutely nothing for me, but at least I tried, which is also fair. But I want to find out and just immerse myself into this experience. I have a strong feeling you will not come back and say, oh, what a, what a bad decision <laughs> this was. Um, what are the stops that you're, I mean, I don't know, have you planned where you're going to be those two months or is it one no, place for, or are you going to be constantly traveling? Or Yeah, so I don't like the constant travel. Um, I think I, I need some routines and, and really like some steady processes and environment around me to be productive. So I couldn't travel like every week or something. But first things that are coming up are a few business trips, basically, um, to Belgrade for a conference together with small PDF, then to Lisbon, because uh, I also like we have a lot of people uh, like working there from previous company, Chim Hopper, but also for Swisspinner, of course. So uh, meeting people there and then to the US uh, because we have a conference there with Rentouch, the software company I work for. We have a conference there. So I'm going to spend the full month in the US and try to combine everything with some Swisspinner interviews and also the conference and business meetings. And then I will see, you know, probably Lisbon will be a place that I'm going to visit a few times over the next years. Okay. And then a question I, of course, have to ask is uh, how much luggage are you bringing for all these travels? Yeah. My goal is to have just one hand luggage as a suitcase and one backpack. That's it. Sounds like a good plan. That sounds like the lean way of doing it. Yeah. I actually realized that it's quite easy. You do just have to do laundry somewhere, but I can fit everything in, in these two things. Always have my laptop and everything, and then you're good to go. Yeah, my, my next question was going to be, was there anything in this process since you've mentally kind of decided or prepared yourself for the step of going nomadic or homeless for the next couple of months? Was there anything that was hard? Well, it was quite an emotional thing, um, you know, to sort of like, let go of that stability and like the environment that you're used to because usually you change like one thing uh, and at the same time there are multiple things changing in my life right now it's like uh, many things at the same time so that can of course feel a bit overwhelming sometimes or you might also feel a bit sad because you're embarking on an uncertain journey but at the same time then it doesn't take long for me to really see the positive and the excitement built up and it's like a, a very positive energy coming out of that Great. Yeah. No, it was a lot of bureaucratic right. hassle. You know, you have to sign papers to sublet and all of that stuff. You have to get it approved by your landlord, all of that stuff. But uh, you can do it. It's, it just needs a bit of time and effort. Yeah. And uh, one tip um, just from personal experience, um, maybe double check. And I know this is very Swiss talking about insurances, but most yeah. travel insurances will only cover you for four to six weeks at a time until you have to be back in your origin country, <clears throat> which maybe you are stopping in Switzerland uh, between those different uh, stops. Sure. But that's something to uh, pay attention to. Um, what I've realized with mine is I can typically get exemptions if I know I'm going to be traveling for two months. Mm -hmm. I can, if I uh, get approval ahead of time, they would yeah. usually extend that. Um, but then also the way Elena and I, my wife and I are planning to live our lives where we move every three months to a new place and, and don't even have this like one place. Well, we'll make Dubai our base, but we're not planning to um, 
necessarily spend all too much time there, but use it as a base to like go from one place to the next yep. and constantly be traveling. There's not a lot of good insurance solutions actually. Um, sure. So I've been, I've been researching like nomad insurances and it seems they're all made for the 20 something year old uh, backpacker that doesn't have yeah. a family and doesn't worry about um, all the things that come with that responsibility. So if someone here is listening and is interested in building the next <laughs> <laughs> best official nomad insurance um, send me a send me a direct message on twitter um, you're all ears to be fair your situation you know with family and um, that's quite unusual i think that's just such a small target group i could imagine well but you you always want to be ahead of the wave right i mean sure, part yeah. of why it is so i think there's only two things why there's not more people doing it in our stage of life one is the uh, administrative overhead, which I would count or put insurances in as well. Mm-hmm. And that I think that can be handled. The other one right. is education. Um, the single, so before, well, it's funny, right? When I was a nomad and I didn't have a, have a girlfriend, everyone was telling me, oh, enjoy this until you have a girlfriend. And once <laughs> Elena and I were together and got married, everyone told us, enjoy this until you have a kid. Now that we have a kid and we're still traveling and living a pretty nomadic life, everyone tells me, oh, wait until she's in like school age or kindergarten age, and then, then you're done. Yeah. So we're not saying we, we have to force it, but for now, it's really fun seeing Lana in these different environments. And she's a good traveler um, so far, um, better than me in many aspects. Like I, <laughs> I think she gets used to the, she doesn't get jet lag as much as I do now. Um, but yeah, um, so we'll see. That, uh, but hopefully we'll have more uh, live streams um, to discuss the troubles each of us get themselves into and, and and how we get out of it and how we solve that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm already curious to see where we're tuning in, both of us, uh, for the next live stream, probably in like, I don't know, one or two months. We're going to see. Yeah. We should make <laughs> cool. it the, the Silvan Nomadic, nomadic Silvan Review um, <laughs> live stream. That, that's going to be an interesting one. We'll see what's happening. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for for taking the time, Cedric. It's always uh, lots of fun with you and uh, we'll be back here very soon. Great seeing you. Thanks so much, Silvan. And thank you everyone for the questions. That was great. I love it. Happy weekend, everyone, and see you here next time. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.